before I do, Karen, I'm I'm disappointed. I was expecting the the quarantine sloth onesie. I know. Well, isn't that fantastic? I'll have to do it next time. <laughs> I'm guaranteeing a return. Hey, I was just like, hey. that I got all excited. But I was thinking of ordering one just to wear it at my first in-person team meeting at oh, HBS. Yeah. My hair will be done to here. You know? <laughs> Whenever that may be. Yeah, it's coming. It's coming. Let's be positive. It's coming. I'm telling you, after this, everyone's going to just be like totally fine with, with just acting strange because we've all just been friends. <laughs> Yeah, so we can have a conversation. I'd love to have, we should write a post on that. I mean, I actually think everybody's going to go completely feral. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I'm worried about running people. <laughs> I was in Boston two to three months ago, uh, visiting yourself at Harvard. And I thought to myself, wow, I didn't realize that would be my last flight for the year home. And I think I almost, uh, I almost missed it as well. So, hi everyone. I'm Jono. I'm the head of growth at High Five and with me today is our CEO, Gary Wilmot and from Harvard Business School Executive Director, Karen Isabel Noob. Thanks, that was really good. So yeah, we've been having quite a few discussions just around where the future of work lies and, and what's, you know, where, I mean, some of the things that the trends that's coming up. And at the time we were saying about how important it is to recognize uh, employees in the workforce and now it's just been even more proven to be true. So it's great to be back together with you. Tell us more just about like Harvard Business School and just just your background, how you got it. Yeah, so um, I came to HBS in 1992. And uh, basically my big claim to fame is that I've moved 10 meters from my dorm room because my office is now in the next uh, next door building. Um, I came because I was interested in how organizations worked and I got more interested in the academic side of it. So I decided to stay and I've been helping faculty write case studies, which is uh, the method that was used to teach, trying to put people into the shoes of the decision makers. Brilliant. And then tell me more just about how do you at Harvard and your, the impact your work you have on the community worldwide? So the mission of Harvard Business School is educating leaders who make a difference in the world. And I've now been under the leadership of several deans who've always come back to this theme to say that uh, business does have a responsibility for good in the world and that the way that we teach them and the materials that we develop to help them identify patterns, learn the skills that they will, they will need in, in the world. So you've been doing quite a bit of research into mental health. Can you tell us more about, about that and your, and your role and, and that you believe that mental health plays in the, in the workplace? So if you do go back to our mission about leaders who can make a difference in the world, then the best way to make a difference is through the people that you manage. Mm. And we became interested in how we could help managers, MBAs, and execs around the world reflect on their own patterns of behavior, get the basic tools around mental health and education, and then think about how to deploy those in their teams and their broader organizations. Definitely being positive, also support might be, uh, might be needed. So for the past seven years or so, we've been doing uh, research and we published a book a couple of years ago and have been continuing to think about the topic. And, and what are some of the biggest trends that are coming out or insights that you're finding leaders are, are grappling onto? You know, for years, it's been clear that people are our greatest assets. Yeah. And so there's been a lot of efforts in the workplace to make the workplace better, to have gyms and um, access to well-being sessions. But at the end of the day, the biggest well-being is your boss 
And so as anybody who manages anybody else or touches anybody else, be it in the workplace or even as a coach or as a preacher, it's very important that we start the work with ourselves. And part of this work is to think about the biases that we may be bringing to this conversation. Yeah. Um, often our own experience with mental health issues or those of others in our workplace or around us might lead us to think that we understand them may not be helpful for the person that you're actually trying to help. So I think my greatest takeaway has been that um, it's always important to reflect and learn first. Yeah. The second is that once you learn, you learn that basically a third of us uh, might not be as productive in the workplace as we should be. Some of us may be suffering from burnout. Some of us may be boring out, which means that we're not doing enough. And then some of us may also be sensing out, which is feeling that you're not connected to the work of the institution or the work of the institution may not be serving the broader community. I think that final one is very, very important, especially for those of us who manage younger people. Do you think that mental health and the, the, the feedback or the, the impact that it's having, do you think it's on more on the leadership aspect of businesses or more on the employee aspect of businesses? So the one thing that we know is that we're all humans. And so yeah. chances are that we are all grappling with some version yeah. of uh, stressors. We have different reactions. You know, resilience is, is very much in fashion. Everybody's very different. So I think it really is mental health for all and by all. Okay. So your boss may be looking out for you, but also as a colleague, I think we really have to look out for each other is super important. Okay. The problem is that, you know, most of us delay getting treatment because we're frightened or we might not have the resources, but stigma is also a huge deal. So often managers think that they're very open-minded and they say, of course, anybody can come to me with, you know, a challenge. But when you look at employee surveys, the world looks very, very different from an employee standpoint. Yeah. And most of them are very reluctant to be honest, because then you may not be promoted or people may be again, assuming that you aren't able to perform a job because maybe their father had this presentation. It's really important is just to be able to create an environment at work where you can have an open conversation with, uh, with the people around you, be there your superiors, be there your bosses, and certainly be there your peers. And, and what do you think are some of the, uh, besides having the open conversations, what do you think are some of the, the low-hanging fruits or the easy wins for, for businesses to implement you know, in the organizations? So what's interesting about the basic stressors yeah. is that employers and employees have different notions about what those look like. So often if you survey employers, they will think that what stresses employees the most are long hours. But if you survey the employees, what stresses them the most is purely badly designed jobs. So it's not a low hanging fruit because I think most of the low hanging fruits have been picked, which is you know, more emphasis on wellness and, and all that. But actually really thinking through, am I designing the workflow as well as I should, given the skills that I people have? And if not, can I either give them the skills or rethinking? So this notion of, and this is a basic managerial imperative. Then you have what you guys are great about, which is recognition, as well as performance, uh, performance evaluation. Another one, which, so something that's been interesting about COVID is that it's really forcing you to rethink the essentials. Yeah. And one essential is, you know, how are my people sitting? So most of us get given working spaces. We don't really think, well, is my team really an introvert? Should I put an introvert next to an extrovert? What are the sources of stress there? So COVID, I think, gives us a chance to think about how are my people working physically? 
I mean, in their, how are they feeling mentally? So you are now seeing people actually ask each other at the beginning of Zoom calls, how are you guys doing? And then people are willing to say, I'm actually feeling too good today. Yeah. And that's suddenly okay. So that to me feels like a low hanging fruit, Gary, but it's been extremely difficult to pluck it before. And I think we are in this space where stigma suddenly has been pulverized. And so some of these opportunities, I think, will present themselves. It's quite an interesting thing just about the rooms, right? I, just, I read a quite interesting thing for people to actually cope in this change. Um, people are used to normally having meetings in different rooms in the offices. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed people, um, they switch rooms based on what meetings they're having. So some people might have a meeting in the kitchen the one day, a meeting in the lounge or meeting in the room, just to feel like they're just having that cont continuous change in their life because, because yeah. it's like 30 days in lockdown and you know, you're stuck in the same room, the same office, they're all in the same situation. So we all feel okay to be transparent with each other, you know? Yes, but I think there too, back to my example about, um, you know, a parent that might have suffered from substance use disorder. So we may all be in the same boat, but we're very different sailors. And so I think something that tricky that may be occurring now is that people say, oh, I know exactly how you feel. And the experience that, uh, you know, my friend has as a community organizer in Chelsea, which is a very uh, um, underprivileged area of Boston, is entirely different. So there too, keeping yourself in check saying, we're all in this under stress, but the stress presents differently. Yeah. And another low hanging fruit for managers is to actually think about how uh, the people that we manage are doing. So I remember the police shootings years ago in their community getting shot, not you on Wall Street necessarily. Uh, um, wow. So a fundamental wow. essential should be, think about where your people are coming, coming from. So I agree with you that that's the, the real opportunity if we, if we do it mindfully and carefully. At Harvard, at Harvard Business School? 100 years, yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you look so young. Uh, 20, 25 years now, is that right? Yeah? 27, 27. And I came to campus in 92, even more, 28. And so what's the culture like there at the, at the university? So I'm at the business school, uh, which, you know, of course, is part of the, the bigger, bigger university. So I'm a staff member and the yeah. dean likes to refer to the partnership between the staff and uh, the faculty as the secret sauce of the institution. Yeah. And I think it works because people are very engaged, respectful. Uh, I mean, I get paid to learn, so I can't really complain. Uh, very empathetic. So the school has come out immediately in this crisis and said that its first priority was to save jobs. And I believe it, all my people believe it. Um, empathetic, committed, compassionate, um, fast moving. I mean, it's academia, but people do not sleep on emails. Everybody's up at six. Uh, you know, when we try to go help the faculty go online for teaching, it was a 7 a.m. call, three weeks in a row, an hour and a half, and people were dressed and showered and in their offices. Um, so high, hard driving, but supportive. And, and that was one thing. I mean, obviously, it's been the it's it's obviously been one of the leading schools in decades. I mean, how do you see this change with COVID and education moving forward? I mean, has everyone adapted so far? So faculty and um, staff, everybody's remote. Uh, yeah. and the classes have occurred through Zoom. I think the school is going through all the shock that you know, K through twelve schools are going through. Uh, medical schools, everybody's in the same uh, same boat. Uh, students have been extremely patient in terms of accommodating faculty also. Uh, but I think COVID is going to have a massive uh, impact on, uh, on higher ed. You know, it's yeah. universities extremely expensive to run. We have a very big exec ed department. 
that's closed. Uh, publishing is selling, you know, fewer fewer materials. So I think the impact is going to be enormous. Um, but a little bit in the why not um, camp, you know, not the yeah. why. Okay, the why well it's happening, and the why not is all right. So can we do more hybrid classrooms? Is there stuff that you can do on Zoom that you cannot do? Um, for example, you know, one thing that is happening is uh, the Shire members of my team are speaking up more on Zoom. We all have the same size box, whether I'm the boss or not. Um, students that might not be speaking in a classroom of 90 people staring at you have been very active on Zoom. So I think we're trying to make the best of it, like most organizations, families around, around the world. Yeah, that's one thing. I mean, work in education is just not going to be the same. But I'm actually quite yeah, and then you have massive visa issues, which is, you know, we're very, very worried about our students who will not be able to get visas. And not just our students, every, you know, all schools around the world. So, um, and then tell me, and, and just in your career, have you learned anything that you, just over the last 20 to 25 years, anything that you would have done differently? So I'm very risk averse. Looking back, maybe I could have taken more risks. Maybe I could have gotten, did the PhD that I originally stayed to do. No, I'm not a big regrets person. Yeah, yeah. I created the team. I hired the people. We have a wonderful culture. Um, so, no, really, really, not, not really. And then, and, then, wh and then why do you think that the culture is still thriving so much in such a, um, I mean, you've got Boston and Massachusetts, and it's almost like Silicon Valley's almost moved into Boston right now, and there's so much innovation with startups and tech and with MIT around the corner. I mean, why, what do you attribute that innovation to? So several years ago, the state of Massachusetts made a very conscious uh, decision to actually promote the life sciences. And I think it was a billion dollar investment at the time, figuring that, you know, you had a lot of talent, you had a lot of teaching hospitals, and then maybe a missing leg of the stool would be the promoting life sciences. So it was a very conscious effort on the part of the state. Um, and that ecosystem really has, uh, has blossomed. Um, then you have a lot of students and research occurring at universities like Harvard and MIT that enables then startups to sort of join this, uh, this development ecosystem. I think naturally you have a lot of people who come to live in Boston and they study here and then they like it and then they stay. You value obviously culture quite a bit in the organization and yourself just being a leader. In your view, who do you think should be managing and measuring the culture in organizations? So I saw that question, which I thought was extremely interesting, and I've never asked myself this question that way, because culture is basically a series of behaviors. Yeah. And behaviors are formed by habits. And habits are formed by sort of a cue and a routine that gets established in order to get the reward. So I think everybody contributes to a culture. Everybody values it in a certain way. I mean, we leave organizations that we deem toxic. It feels like a facile answer, but I'm going to say that everyone is. Yeah, that's brilliant. I see what you mean. It's, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't just be top down. It shouldn't be bottom up. It should be everyone should be constantly reflecting on themselves and the culture in the organization. Yeah, and also we are all part of the reality we're, we're creating. So the other day I'm walking around with my girlfriend who is of Asian descent. And, you know, we're getting these looks. I was walking with somebody who had a mask that was skin colored. People are becoming aggressive. Culture really works when you're looking out for behaviors that you like and reinforcing them. And if you yeah. see behaviors that you find counterproductive, that you try to take the person apart and say, you know, where are you coming from when you're, I feel that there's a change in your energy. Are you all right? 
Yeah. So Karen, you mentioned that, you know, obviously that um, a culture is an important thing and ongoing appreciation and recognition and feedback is important. How do you see this being lived out now with just working, uh, working from home uh, and working remotely? Uh, do you think it's still just as important right now? So I would say it's a hundred times more important because we're not in the office sort of seeing each other, picking up on nonverbal clues, feeling the proximity with, uh, you know, the sense of belonging that the office affords. So we are in our homes. We're reminded that we're in our homes and not at the office. There's no branding to remind us, no office space to sort of awe us. Um, our lives are out of control. There's so much we don't know. So I think the more you can do as a manager in this low touch environment, and um, I looked up the definition of touch. The second one is to make a difference in people's lives. And I would say that the less of the physical touch you can have, the more of a difference you should be making in your team's lives. And yeah. so it may be these daily check-ins, but we all have Zoom fatigue. So actually pick up the phone and call one of my, I have 20 people, I call one of my people in the morning, one in the afternoon, it's like, hey, I'm folding the laundry, what you doing? Um, so just finding ways to remain connected, writing little notes in the mail. People, you know, people can Lysol them when it, uh, when it arrives. Um, anything that you can do online, like using y'all's platforms and services, I think is extremely important. Yeah, it's brilliant. And it's not just important. I think it's also really a way to help people make their way through, through the situation. So it's, it's also fundamental to our public health in general. Yeah. Something we've also noticed in our data as well is that, you know, most organizations with working from an office, that's how they've gotten used to trusting their employees. And now there's almost this more trust that leaders have to have on their employees, knowing they're working from home. Um, and, and yet they can't always be working synchronously. They have to be working asynchronously because they're doing things at different time zones or different parts of the day. And what we've seen, and it's coming out more and more in the data, is that it's not just about the um, the, the meetings that I had, it's about the over communication. It's about intentional about and keeping, um, employees and, and leaders up to date with ongoing communication on yes. and data. Um, because the moment that, that, that data is not happening, that's when people start distrusting each other because they're not getting any feedback. Um, and that's even just more of a, of a reason just to, just to keep doing that on a continual basis, you know? Yeah. yeah, I would say though, so, you know, there's also too much communication. So at some point, if the emails are too frequent, if the emails are too long, uh, people are getting fatigued on what the fundamental message is. So I would say keeping things, things short can also have, uh, have you know, a big, uh, big, point, uh, very big point of view. Uh, one thing that's been on my mind is, you know, we've made a lot of efforts around diversity and inclusion in the workplace. Um, and I'm wondering how this is going to present in this disembodied world, because a lot of the tools that we used to have, lunches and in informal ways, um, that's going to go by the wayside. And so I don't know that what the answer is there, but I do know that I th we have to pay, pay more attention to it than, than before, in addition to recognition. Yeah, and that's a incredible opportunity as well. You know? And I think yes. it, it's becoming more global. I mean, I, I thought about the other day. I mean, I think I had about three international calls and... Um, you know, there's usually the icebreaker with what city they're in or what location and getting used to the time zone. And now just the uh, global way of doing work has just become normal. And because it's just done over video and it's, there's no more discussion around location anymore. It's just, yes. just discussion around work, which is a, 
exciting in a way. There's like the barriers just getting less and less. Really. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think we're we're being more location um, agnostic. I think what's going to get very tricky is that in some ways we're in the easy part of all this. I think very tricky is going to be getting back to work. Yeah. Uh, because you're going to have some people on site, you're going to have some people off site. Uh, some of us are good at managing remote workers. Some of us are good at managing on-site workers. Most of us are not good at both. Yeah. And yet, a lot of leaders are going to be in these uh, in these situations. Yeah. Um, so more, you know, being more ambidextrous about how you treat your your people. Yeah. I I I just I think uh, I think a lot more people were quite adverse to remote work, and I think more and more they've gotten used to it and they realize the benefits. You know, I mean, we've been doing it for the last three to four years and I can't see us ever going back, you know? It's just, uh, yeah. it's just the way yeah. of doing work. Yeah. And I think people realize, wow, I wasted, I wasted maybe, you know, 10 or 20 hours of my week in traffic and I've got time to spend more with my family and kids and everyone to do, be more productive. And Absolutely. And if your workplace is hostile or if you work in an open plan, especially as a, as a woman, it might be more difficult, so you may be happier at home. Um, so I think then it's going to be difficult in terms of forcing people to come back uh, to come back to work. Exactly. Um, but on the other yeah. hand, if people are remote, then you know you just have to change and think about how you're going to build a build a culture. Most of us are not born digital. Yeah. Um, and I think for for organizations like uh, like mine, it's a particular particular challenge. Yeah. So we look forward to learning from organizations like uh, like yours. Yeah, and I mean, we, I mean, we're obviously. We, I think we're at the tail end. There's so many that have kind of paved the way for us over the over the past few years. You've got the likes of, of uh, like uh, Basecamp and Buffer, and uh, mm -hmm. so it's it's exciting, you know. So, but yeah, like I said, I, I think since COVID, I don't think work and education's ever going to be the same. So we'll have to see what comes out of it. So I'm I'm obviously trying to remain positive, but I'm I'm loving. I'm just loving the innovation that's coming out of education and work right now as well. So yes. I can see that. Yeah. yeah. And well, one of the, a, a parting thought is uh, my daughter, who's an environmental studies person, you know, said for years I've been told that things cannot change because the system is as it is. And all at once the systems all flipped. Yeah. And so back on the why not, I think it is a time of amazing uh, reinvention. And I think it's, uh, it's for all of us, uh, all of us too. Did you ever meet Clayton Christensen? Yes, I actually went to his memorial. Uh, I've yeah, been was, a big we had fan. to stand for for hours online, as you can, uh, as you can imagine, touch so many so many people's lives, and he was also just a, a great person. He's incredible. Yeah, I read I've read uh, good two or three of his books, and I've, I've actually thought about him constantly. You know, I'm sure he would love to be around just to witness this, because I mean he. I mean, just with this disruption and innovation, I mean, he was literally just writing the book, you know, in front of us for the last 20 years. And I think this is yeah. the tipping point for what's happening right now. So, and yes, and I think in, in higher ed, it's certainly, uh, certainly the case. So one of the things that I like about Clay's research is often he asks, you know, what is the job to be done? Yeah. So it's not the object. So a McDonald's, you know, why do people drink McDonald's milkshakes for breakfast? It's because the job to be done is not drinking a milkshake for breakfast. It's to get fed while you're driving to, to work in the US, right? And so I think a big question is, you know, what is the job to be done by education? So is it imparting skills? Is it imparting culture? And I think we're at the same juncture about management. Um, what the job to be done is supporting your people in a time of need. That is the one sort of job to be done now for management. And then rethinking about how you you create your workspace and your own style, uh, your own style anew. Um, so I think he would be fascinated. 
if you were here and I wish you were, we could ask him. That'd be incredible. I think you're leaving your door open for a second episode that's coming out soon. <laughs> we'll have to definitely pick this up. So that'd be great. Eh? With but pleasure. Yeah, it's nice to chat with you guys. Oh man, it was so special. Thank you so much for your time. Just to wrap up, we just want to ask maybe just a few final questions. Um, of course. Yeah. How do you say, so how do you spend your day on average? Uh, how do I spend my, I read and write. Yeah. yeah. Okay. In the morning or evening? That sounds terrible. I used to dance, but now I can't. I have to dance in my kitchen. I mean, dance, like that dance, not like... Oh, like... like uh, Love like dance. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm a big EDM person, yeah. Woo! Woo! <laughs> not quite. It's one chung <laughs> Talk about the one thing my people don't miss at the office. <laughs> and your favorite reading material as of late? I like magazines. I read, I read all over the place in magazines, yeah. Okay, brilliant. Yeah, so, National Geographic, all the way to Cosmopolitan. I guess because you're so in the intellectual space, you kind of just want to get into something more. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know what the excuse is, but no, I like diversity. I even read <laughs> fashion magazines, I read really? business magazines. Okay, brilliant. Yeah. And then, and what's the one productivity tool or software that you use every day? I just do email. I avoid social media. There's well. such a kickback against social media lately. I think all well, not lately, but over the last year or two, just it's, it's a, almost been yeah. a mass exodus. Wow, Karen, thanks, thanks so much for uh, for joining us today. We do appreciate your time. I know you're very busy um, up in Boston, Massachusetts, so um, and at, at at HBS. So we love obviously the material. Um, so just yeah, thanks again for your time and and just spending time with us. And we're looking forward to the next episode um, when. Hopefully everything calms down a bit. Yeah, I would, uh, I would love that. It was really nice to uh, spend some time with you guys and thank you for the questions they made me, they made me think. And as you know, I'm available to anybody who needs any help or has good ideas that can be shared. So please uh, reach out to me. Um, Brilliant. Yeah, so what's a, what is the best way for our audience to reach out to you? So my email is uh, cknoop at hbs.edu. And uh, I'd love to hear from you guys and good luck. Thank you. Thank you very much. Give us a high five. My pleasure. Of course. I'll give you a high ten. Yeah. Woo. <laughs>